In my office, there hangs some football jerseys of some of my favorite players. One of those players is a Hall of Famer. Actually got drafted in the third round by the Arizona Cardinals, which is actually my favorite football team. But his name is Aeneas Williams. Now, I can tell you a lot about Aeneas Williams. I can actually tell you about the time that I met him. I was actually at an Indianapolis Colts game, and uh, my best friend and I at the time went back uh, behind the stadium to try and meet a player, and uh, we had hoped that we would meet Aeneas. And sure enough, he was standing there with two people who actually were wearing his same uniform, or, or his jersey, I should say. It was interesting because I came up and I introduced myself, and clearly he was not as excited to see me as he was excited to see the people across from him. It was his parents. And they were just talking about the game that they had experienced and what they'd gone on. And I can imagine that through years of him growing up, they had seen him play in different times, whether it be in, as a, a kid or in high school or in college. But in this moment, there was some bonding. And what was interesting with them was they actually had their Bible open. They were actually sharing something that they were discussing and what they had been learning in. And I, honestly, I can tell you a lot about Aeneas Williams, but I can tell you clearly I wasn't as close as the people that were, were next to him. If you go in my office, there's also some pictures, some pictures of my family. And there's one person that is more precious to my family than anybody else. It's my wife. Now, if you want to ask me a question about my wife, I will just challenge you. I think there are very few things that I don't know about my wife. Matter of fact, when we first started dating, Christy can tell you that I was, uh, I was somewhat of an investigator. I tried to ask her as many questions as I could. I wanted to know her favorite color. I wanted to know her favorite flower. I wanted to know the things that made her tick. I wanted to, I wanted to understand her in as many ways as I could because I really had hoped that our relationship would go somewhere, and it did. And so now we've been married almost 26 years in October, and the truth of the matter is I'm still learning about my wife. I'm still finding nuances about her that I didn't understand. She's actually revealing to me some truths about herself or things that I thought she always liked that she maybe doesn't. And as we're growing together, we're actually learning new ways to encourage, support, and understand each other. I'm a big fan of Aeneas Williams. I love my wife. And the truth of the matter is, there is a difference between knowing about someone and truly knowing someone. And it's with that preface that we start as we introduce week one of our series called Christian Atheist. Because I think for many of us, when it comes to our faith, we have stepped into maybe knowing about God, but do we know God personally? And this is going to be a series that may challenge us in our everyday walk because the reality is we live in a world where everyone says they believe in God. To simply say you believe in God is the same standard as a demon. We just understand that from Scripture, correct? Demons say they know who God is and they shudder, but it doesn't mean they live a life honoring God. Matter of fact, they live a life in rebellion towards God. And so for each of us, as we talk about this idea of what it means to be a Christian atheist, there are going to be some nuances, some conversations, a chance to maybe peel back the facade of our faith and press in deeply to who we are 
before God, before ourselves, and before one another. What is a Christian atheist? I think if we were to describe a Christian atheist, we would say it this way. It is someone who believes in God, but, but lives as if God doesn't exist. Meaning we would openly say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in God, but the very fruit of our life doesn't seem to express the character, the nature, the understanding of who God is and why that should be valued in the way that our lives are expressed. Through love, through mercy, through justice, through compassion. To know God is to live out the will and the ways of God. The tension of, not knowing, of knowing God but not really living like him puts us in a quandary to ask, do we really know who God is? Or is the God that we're pursuing uh, the God that we want God to be? Something that maybe we've conjured up. God should be this way. I think God should do this. I think God should act in this way. And so the, the mindset we have when we talk about God tends to just be shaped only in the will and the way of what we want from God. So if you have your Bibles, I want to have you open up to a passage out of Matthew chapter 7. This is a discourse of Jesus, perhaps his most popular message time uh, in front of other people who are pursuing a life after God. Many, many of these people are God-fearing people. They, they have learned and understood through their heritage, through their legacy, who God is through the nation of Israel. And many of them actually are what we would probably call professional followers of God, meaning they, they know all the inside language, they understand all the law and the testaments, they understand everything and the nature and the teaching but it doesn't necessarily mean that they live out the very heart of God. And so Jesus is talking about false prophets and false teachers, people who on one hand say, well, this is who God is, but their life lives in complete conflict towards it. And Jesus is warning people about they, how they judge one another. And he's encouraging people to be able to approach God with prayer and expectancy that God will respond and hear their cries. But Jesus begins to differentiate that not everyone is going to follow after the way of Jesus because it's a narrow path. And then he puts this warning out there for those who are listening to his teaching. Be careful. Be careful of those who are false prophets who speak and act like they know God but don't know him at all. The passage we're about to read is not an encouraging one today, so I ask that you put your seatbelt on for a moment because it's somewhat painful. Here's what Jesus says to this crowd of curious folks who want to know who Jesus is, his view of God, and the way of the kingdom that he's inviting them to. Here's what it says, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? And in your name, do we provide many miraculous miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, this is Jesus speaking, 
I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. That's a passage that in a lot of ways should cause us to be very uncomfortable at this point. The backdrop is Jesus speaking about the eternity of all of humanity that each and every one of us will stand and give an account before God for who we are and how we have stewarded our lives. And for those of us that have a relationship with God, we have an expectancy to be able to go up, ring the doorbell, and that as we stand before God, it is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that has paid our price for our entrance. But that entrance is offered to us as we surrender our lives back to God. It is God's grace that provides the way. It's our faith and response that begins this relationship. And so Jesus is drawing somewhat of a line in the sand and says, hey, 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 there are going to be a lot of people with us on the journey. They're going to buy an all-in t-shirt. They're going to they're hold a door for you. They're going to sing songs with you. But the reality is, I don't know them. Now, this is not that God does not know all of humanity, okay? This is not like God, remember, God's the one that also says, I know every hair on your head. You know, I, God knows us. But the conversation of knowing someone is the difference between knowing about and truly knowing in a relationship. Do we know God? Do you know God? I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus desires for you to know him as well as Jesus knows you. That we would have a rhythm to our relationship like a husband would with a wife. That we would be able to finish each other's sentences, anticipate expectations, celebrate moments that we know matter to each other. When we think of somebody who might know Jesus, maybe we would think of it this way. It's someone who has a personal relationship with Jesus. They respond when the Holy Spirit begins to prompt their life, when they need confronted or challenged or changed. They're the kind of people that when they struggle in their walk, they begin to lean back into the Word of God, back into Scripture, so that they can, they can begin to change and transform their life, understand the character by which God would want us to live. They're the kind of people that long for discipline and correction because they want to mature in their faith. They're willing to be the kind of people that would repent, would surrender their lives in obedience back to God. People who know God know that sometimes their faith is going to put them in circumstances where they're going to stand out. They may be in conflict not for the sake of fighting, but for the understanding that the kingdom of God runs counterintuitive to the kingdom of this world. And so with our banners and life of love, the momentum of grace, the conviction of faith, we begin to pursue our relationship with Jesus knowing that it may shift the world around us. Jesus says, time out. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
A few years ago, Kyle Eidelman did a curriculum called Not a Fan. It sold millions and millions of copies, and churches did this study everywhere. But the entire premise was this, that as followers of Jesus, as disciples, as students who long to know the will and way of God, we cannot afford to be fans. We must be followers. And that means that our lives are given obedience back to God. And sometimes we cheapen that with thinking we should just be nice. Many of us think that being a Christian means being a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, that we should have some just general moral fiber, that we will walk elderly across the road, we won't kick our dog, and we recycle. And while those values are important, the way of Jesus is much more robust. It's a life of surrender. It's a life of selflessness. And it's a life of sacrifice. And maybe that's why we get uncomfortable with knowing God the way God knows us. What Jesus is really getting at is that faith is more than just a formality or a formula. It's really about being family. What I mean by that is this. Formally, uh, our faith, sometimes we do that. You know, I did what I had to do. I said the prayer. I did what was expected. I got my get out of hell free card, right? So I'm good. Or we think about it uh, in a formula, that somehow we're doing things uh, the, the right way. It becomes more about a routine. It becomes more about a ritual. It becomes a, almost stale that we're just kind of going through the motions. What God's calling us to is to be family. That when Jesus describes the relationship of those who know him, he puts it in the context of saying, it's those who do the will of my father, meaning that the relationship that Jesus has with God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, just like this relationship is in union, so your relationship with God should be in union. That we ultimately get the name on the back of our jersey is not our own, but it's God's. It's forgiven. It's restored. It's healed. That we get to bear the coat of arms. That the shield of God, his family's crest, comes on our lives. And the difference between being a fan or being family is the significant difference between knowing about God or God-like things and knowing the very nature and the heart of God for your life, for the world around you, for the sake of others. Verses 22 and 23 should shock some of us because uh, literally Jesus is saying there are people who will do incredible things like God would do, but they know nothing about him. But God... I went to summer conference with our students. But God, I took a trip to a third world country to help those who are hungry. But God, I did. But God, I did. But God, I did. And Jesus says, yeah, you went, you traveled, you stood, you sang. But our relationship is not there. It's a stark thought. To be a Christian atheist is someone who would say, yeah, yeah, this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what I believe. And literally one of the passages, a letter written to Titus, 
in the New Testament, he has a description of people like this. When he says in Titus 1.16, he says, they claim to know God by their actions, yet they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. The writer is trying to help us understand that our actions are our works for God, apart from having a heart that knows God, is worthless. It's worthless. And it may be tough for us. Some of us right now, well, what does it take? How do I do this? What do I? And I want to move beyond the formality or the formalness of our faith and talk about how would we interact in family? You know, being family, when our family gets together, it's not about the role or position of who you are in the hierarchy. It's about how do you care for the person next to you? Do you honestly listen to people who talk to you? Do you hear their hurts, their hopes? Do you have a conversation that when you look into their eyes, you let them know that they are known, they are valued, and they are loved? Or do we show up for the gift exchange and just go, what am I going to get while I'm here? Have you done that Christmas? And Jesus is saying we should be able to interact in a way that not only do I know you and your heart, because God does, but you should be able to know my heart, my will, and my way. God doesn't want more mimicking of his faith. He wants modeling of his faith. He doesn't need more impersonations of God. He needs imitators of his character. And Jesus is the one that says, hey, just so we're all clear, on that day when we stand before God, I will be the one who declares, I am the defining point by which we say, who knows God? Jesus is not saying that because he loves that. Jesus is calling a time out so that people might pause in front of him. They may understand his authority, his majesty, his place in eternity, and they might bow and humble themselves to understand that it's through Jesus that we have reconciliation. Through Jesus, it's how we understand God, that God himself is available in flesh. And so we now stand as people who look back at history, recognizing the fingerprints of God through creation, through God, through the nation of Israel, through God himself as Jesus, our pure and blameless sacrifice. And now we see those fingerprints continue through the people of the church who know God and live his will and way. We are now a long succession of obedience following after Jesus. It's a hard pastoral truth. But thankfully, those of us who know God, who understand that the free gift of grace is ours to receive, That the life of faith that we're invited into grows us into the character of God. Knowing Jesus should impact our day-to-day life. We would say it this way. We say this several times in multiple, multiple series. But here's what Jesus is pressing into us. Head knowledge leads to heart change. Head knowledge leads to heart change. What you know about God should lead to a transformed life and how you will live on behalf of God. It's perhaps the longest walk of obedience, the 18 inches of knowing and learning to loving and living the life of God. This idea of to know 
to know the will of the Father is a powerful word, especially in Jesus' day, because different groups would take this philosophical, theological term, and they would shape it into their own way. And so when Paul is, excuse me, when Jesus is describing this idea of knowing God, he's speaking in one of the most fundamental, realistic pictures of what it means to know. We would say it is to recognize, it is to understand, but time out. If you press into this word deeply, here's literally the connotation it means. It's the way a husband knows his wife. Do I need to explain what's in between the sheets? That you know each other like no one else knows you. Was that too graphic or is that too pointed? Let me say it this way. That you could stand before God completely exposed, completely naked, in the confidence that God already knows you, loves you, and longs to be with you because of whose you are. You are his child. That kind of knowledge doesn't happen from a book alone. That kind of knowledge doesn't come just through a conversation over coffee alone. That kind of knowing God is an intimate, personal relationship. Recently, I chose to go through a life mapping process. Why? Because I'm 49 years of age and I'm not sure who I'm supposed to be when I grow up, okay? I just, just wanted to see some things about where I've been heading and who I'm becoming and what I want, it, want to be and the kind of person I want to be. And as I was going through this process, I was really affirmed. I figured out some of my strengths and some of the things that I'm good at. I was reminded about who I used to be, the things that gave me energy when I was a kid, the things I pursued with my heart when I was at my fullest of life. And it also exposed some weaknesses, perhaps some corrupt motives, some things that I'm uncomfortable with. And when I began to look deep into myself and who I am before God, my deepest, truest self is both beautiful and despicable, inspirational and embarrassing. But knowing myself is nowhere as comparable to knowing who Jesus is. Because in knowing Jesus, I realize that in my weakness, I am made strong through Jesus. In my failures through Jesus, he forgives, he restores. God's grace through Jesus is sufficient for all of my desires and all of my passions to begin to have a purpose in the hands of God. There's great joy in knowing that because God has made himself available to us. And as God wants us to be available to him, God has already revealed himself. Whether it's through his word, whether it's through the person of Jesus or by the power of his spirit, God has made himself available that we might know him and experience him. What God desires from us is a repentant heart. A repentant heart. One that would throw its allegiance to him rather than hold it to ourselves. 
Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is teaching for a minute and he speaks about the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares. We may think of it as the wheat and the weeds. The parable goes that there's a sower that sows some seeds of wheat, and when he throws them out across the field, he plants that expecting a great harvest, and yet his enemy comes in and begins to sow other seed amongst it. These weeds that get in between. Over time, the rain comes, the soil begins to produce this, and what they see is what looks like wheat and more wheat, but it's wheat and weeds. And to those uh, men and, and leaders who would walk throughout the fields to begin to prepare for the harvest, they would recognize that the weeds are intertwined with the wheat. And so Jesus' closest disciples say, should we go out and should we start separating the weeds out of the wheat? Should we start pulling it up? And Jesus says, no, in the parable, no, we leave the weeds with the wheat, so that we don't yank them up and yank out the wheat amongst the weeds. He says, what we do is we, we let it bear its fruit so that when we come through, we can recognize the fruit of the, of the plants and then more accurately separate the two and the wheat we bring a harvest and the weeds we throw away and burn. And Jesus is using an eschatological picture to talk for a moment about this day of judgment. Some of you are going, what's the big deal about weeds? The tares, as they were called in the day, literally, if you were to take their fruit and grind it and make it into food, it was toxic. It would make you sick. But if you take wheat and grind it and make it into food, you were nourished. And Jesus starts to put a side-by-side comparison that there are those of us who are bearing fruit that brings the life of God, and there is those of us who are mimicking that life, and it's only a life of self, or worse, a life surrendered to the enemy. Does that, does that stir anybody else's heart? Does that cause any of us just to pause for a moment and go, oh, what is my faith? Is it some sort of formula thing? I do this, this, and this, and I hope that I've checked off enough boxes? Uh, did, I, did I show up like work and uh, punch my time clock, and does that make God happy with me? Or do I have a walking faith with God? So how do I begin to know God? Here's what I'm nervous about in myself, is that if we keep this course of just going about our faith without facing the reality of are we truly vulnerable, transparent, and knowing God in our walk, that we could end up playing church and not be the church. And friends, the world needs the church more than it ever has. It needs people who know Jesus personally. I think sometimes when we talk about knowing God, there are some of you that are in this room that go, yeah, but Danny, I'm not a feeler, I'm a thinker. Whether you think or whether you feel, you don't get a pass out of this. In my marriage, my wife's a thinker. I'm a feeler. Sometimes that requires of me to kind of tone down the emotion and listen. Sometimes that requires my wife to quit thinking so hard and join me in the moment. 
Some of us are sitting here going, well, I, I don't know. Dan- Danny, I've tried to know God. I've, I've read scripture. And Danny, you don't even know the journey I'm in right now. I've cried out to God and he doesn't seem to answer. I've sat with friends. Maybe you have a family member who really wanted to hear from God and didn't. God, I don't, I don't, I don't know why God allows us to go through certain seasons. I don't know why God allows us to not hear from him. But when it comes to Jesus, I want you to know that being in a season of silence does not mean that you're in a season of his absence. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is through the movie Ray. You know the story of Ray Charles? And Jamie Foxx plays the character, and there's this moment where Ray is thinking back to his childhood, and he's gone blind because of an accident, I believe, and he runs into the house, and he trips over a rocking chair, and he falls to the ground, and he's screaming, Mama, Mama, help, I need you, I need you. And in that, like, three seconds of the movie, every mother in the room is just in tears. I mean, it's just this gut-wrenching scene, and as he's crying these tears, nobody comes to help him. And his mother is no more than 10 feet from him. The child playing Ray Charles stands up in that moment and all of a sudden he hears a boiling pot. And he hears a cowbell. He hears the crackle of a fire and he goes forward to touch it and gets close. He walks around the fireplace Here's the wind and a horse that goes by. He hears a cricket on the floor. He grabs the cricket, listens to it, and goes, Mama, I hear you too. I know you're there. I don't have a lot of answers why not everybody hears God in the way that others hear God. But I can tell you that it's God's desire that you would tune your ear and calm your mind and heart before him. And oftentimes the only way to calm our mind and bring peace to our heart is to trust and obey. And that's the tension for most of us in our view of God. I want God to prove who God is so that I can determine if I should change my life. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's normal. When Paul writes this passage of his desire for what he thinks God wants from us and for us, he says this. I keep asking that that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope for which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for all of us who believe. 
Paul's desire is for these people in Ephesus is that they would know God beyond just the historic truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that the spirit of God would resonate in their lives, that the word of God would bear fruit in their lives, and so that ultimately the wisdom and revelation, the aha moments of who God is in real time, in real life, in real situations, we would have a deeper understanding And that our eyes might literally see what the heart knows to be true. Is that God has called you into his hope. And the glorious riches of his eternity are an invitation for all people. Friends, here's where we want to land. Knowing God leads to a transformed life. Knowing God leads to a transformed life. That means the more intimate your relationship becomes, the more you know and learn about God as God works in your life, you will, you will learn things about yourself and you'll learn more and more about the character of God. Let me ask it to you this way. For those of you who gave your life to Christ, how are you different today from the day that you made that decision. Because I'll tell you this, if you ask anyone who's been married, all they need is 10 minutes to tell you how much their life has changed, right? You begin to learn in every moment and situation about one another. God's desire for us is that we would have his hope, not weighed down by the burdens of life. That we would be the kind of people that live as salt of the earth, light of the world, that we would bring and draw people towards him. That we would have the power, the strength, not by our own efforts or our will, but by the power of God, we would live out God's love, God's justice, God's compassion for this world. So let me encourage you. If your relationship with God has grown stale, if you surrendered your life years ago, minutes ago, days ago, may we all pursue a relationship with Jesus that he can know us more intimately and we might know God more intimately than we ever have. Let's move to our time of response. And Jesus comes out of Matthew chapter 7, and he tells a parable about the wise and foolish builder. You know, the foolish builder builds his house on the sand, and when the storms of life come, it collapses. And, and, and the wise builder, he builds his house on a rock, and when the storms of life come, that house stood firm. The interesting thing about a parable is Jesus is painting a portrait so we can all look in and then evaluate our lives. The truth of the matter is, everybody likes to build the house. We want to build our life to look a certain way. But everyone who has a life needs to put their life on a foundation. And we can either build it on the rock, which is intended to be God, or we can build our life on sand, which is really what Jesus is pointing to ourself. And what he's pointing to is he says this. He says this at the opening part of the parable. The difference is the one who hears my words and puts them into action. 
It's the one who hears God's word and is obedient to it. The challenge for most of us is most of us on our own, we can build a pretty rocking house. We can build up a great career, a great trajectory. Our foundation can be pretty strong. But the measurement of God's life for us is not the temporary, it's the eternal. And if your goal for life is to live to 70, 75 years and you've got life by the tail, you're gonna succeed at 75 years. But 75 years compared to eternity is a blip. And the relationship that God's inviting you into is one that is one for eternity. That's why we use the app and we encourage you to take a next step, whether it's to ask for prayer, maybe it's to take a next step of faith. Maybe it's to begin to ask questions and sit down with somebody and say, I, I, I'm not even sure about where this series is going, but I'm really uncomfortable about my journey and walk with God. Can we talk? Absolutely. But I need you to respond. I need you to let us know your prayers, your needs. I need you to respond in obedience. Or maybe it's just as simple as going directly to guest central after service and grabbing someone to talk there. You know, we're gonna pause and we're gonna take communion right now. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he sat with his closest followers and he said to them, he took the bread and he, he, he pulled it out in front of them and he said, you know, this is, this is my body broken for you. He hadn't died yet on the cross. He was taking an old traditional ritual of Passover. And he was now communicating with them a foretelling, a foreshadowing of his own death. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the wine. A ritual, a tradition that they normally did. And he said, no, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. His followers were celebrating Passover, the day of deliverance for the nation of Israel in Egypt. And Jesus was now pressing in saying, the deliverance of humanity will be found in me. I am giving all so that all might know God. It's an incredible gift. I love it that we take it weekly because every Sunday I pause with my family, you guys, and we get to be reminded that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Friends, we also have a chance to respond through our giving we have given respond boxes in the room, but the safest, most secure way to do that is actually through the app. And God knows us, our hearts and our desires. And I want to encourage you, even in your finances, to respond back to God, to allow God to use every portion of our life for his mission and his purpose. Let's go ahead and stand. Let's go ahead and sing. Let's continue to worship together.